Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome tonight. My name's LT. I'm one of the pastors here at Church by the Bridge. I'm going to pray for us as we come to God's Word. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that we could be here tonight. Thank you that we could be with each other. Thank you that you're present with us. And thank you that as a loving Father, you've got a word for us tonight. A word for each one of us from your word here in Isaiah 58. So I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit will prepare our hearts and our minds to hear the word that you've got to bring to us tonight. That he will so do a work in our hearts and minds that we not only understand what you're saying to us, but so understand it so it actually shows forth in the way that we speak and we live for Jesus' sake. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, it was a while ago now, but um, I went on a holiday with uh, some friends of mine. It was a couple. And uh, part of the holiday involved actually flying. And so we had to get in a plane, which is what you do when you fly, obviously. Um, and the wife of the couple was very afraid of flying, had a great fear of flying. And so I think before we'd even taken off, uh, not only had she had the, sort of the grip of her husband's arm and fingernails kind of embedded in his skin, she actually had a grip of my arm and I could feel her fingernails sort of embedding in my skin and maybe blood about to burst forth. It was sort of so strong before the plane had taken off. And so we did take off and the grip got stronger and stronger. Um, but we flew, everything was fine, and she, she calmed down and we landed again. It sort of the, the arms came out and the grip happened, but it, everything was fine. But then, of course, we had to leave the airport and get to our accommodation. And so we hailed down a taxi and jumped into a taxi. And it was actually in LA. And if you've ever been there, you know that the roads are quite big and quite fast-paced. And so we got into this taxi, and I'm not sure if this is true of all taxi drivers in LA, but he only knew one speed. It was kind of pedal to the metal, that was it. And so I think he had some other principles he drove by, um, a couple being you couldn't just change one lane at a time, you had to kind of change two or three lanes at a time, and you couldn't stay in one lane for more than about five seconds either apparently. And so we had taken our lives into our hands getting into this taxi. I mean, forget about being afraid of flying. This was seriously dangerous. And we just hadn't expected that would be the dangerous part of our trip. My friend had thought it was the plane. But it was actually the decision to get into that taxi. Now, I'm not sure what your week's been like and whether you would say that you made a decision that was going to put you into danger. But in actual fact, being in church here right now is the most dangerous decision you've made all week. Being in church now 
means you're actually in danger, believe it or not. And you might have picked up why from the reading in Isaiah 58. You're in danger because what Isaiah 58 is saying is uh, religious activity that's done with an attitude of show to get something from God is actually false religion and condemned by God. So that puts you in a dangerous position because if you have that attitude, you would be condemned by God. I'm not sure how you're thinking or feeling about where we're up to so far. I'm, hang on a sec. Came to church, so I've kind of been encouraged and built up, strengthened. That's a bit rough, isn't it? But isn't it great that God, our loving Heavenly Father, has a word for us that means he doesn't want us to stay where we are, if that's us. But to experience the richness, the fullness, the vitality of having real relationship with him. Because that's the alternative. So we've been going through Isaiah under the heading of trust the God who and so tonight it's about trust the God who knows I don't know your heart the people next to you don't know your heart and what's going in the quietness of your head and your heart but God knows and so we're in the section of Isaiah uh, 56 to the end where we're finding out what it means to live as the people of God as we wait for the fulfillment of the promises that we've been given especially to us in this point in time in history, this side of Jesus. So we're waiting for his return and what does it mean? What does it look like to live in relationship with God while we wait for his return? So let's jump in, if we dare, to Isaiah 58, thinking about firstly, false religion exposed. False religion exposed. Let's go back to verse 1. Cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Uh, it's last time as we're looking at Isaiah 55, uh, the call to come, that is the invitation, was crystal clear. So here, the message is crystal clear. God wants Isaiah to expose the sin of his people, their sin or transgression. Call it out loudly. Call it for what it is he wants the sin exposed so that's what we've got here god's people have sinned they've rebelled what is their sin well as i've said it's false religion they've taken a religious practice given to them by god fasting and turned it into something that's skewed disformed deformed usually in the wrong way of fasting, a practice that was meant and given to, to us by God to draw us into a deeper relationship with God, withholding from something that we might be reminded of our need of all things, particularly of God, so that it would draw us closer to him, that he would increase and so we would decrease. And as we see him increase in his goodness to us, particularly in Jesus, for us, we would decrease and only increase in our awareness of how we're not him and so increase in our understanding of how sinful we are. But it seems 
that God's people have taken fasting and used it as something that's for them to increase and for God to decrease. And then they bring that to God. And it's as if they're using God and thinking of God as like a cosmic vending machine. They've got their fasting tokens because they have fasted, which is a good thing. But then they've got that and they've twisted it and they've taken their tokens and they've like put them into the God cosmic vending machine and, and think God should spit some things out for them. Why hasn't he done that? And if it's not enough that they're trying to manipulate God, look at verse 3. Why have we fasted but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves but you haven't noticed. If it's not enough that they've tried to manipulate God and twisted something good into something bad, they're actually angry with God because he hasn't delivered as they think he should. See, they've turned something, a religious or spiritual practice that's meant to be good for our relationship with God, uh, for themselves. So they're self-absorbed, self-interested. They're religious fakes and God condemns religious fakes and people who practice false religion. It's as though they're treating God like a bit of a lucky charm. You might have heard of some sports men and women who have lucky charms as they go to play or do their sporting activity, maybe particularly before a big game. So I heard of one guy, and he's really losing at both points here, isn't he? Because Every day he has a big game. He starts the day with breakfast, which is always lollies. I felt really bad for him because the good luck doesn't work and the lollies mean he's going to be really playing badly. So on both fronts, he's really lost. Or another guy who wears the opposition's sort of team pants to bed the night before. I'm not sure how that works, but there's a lot of superstition going on in that, isn't there? Or last night as I was watching the Wallabies, I heard that one Wallaby sleeps in till 12 and then always has Subway. Now, I'm not sure if he, he drew the connection between that and him winning, but either way, there's some sort of ritual going on. And in fact, uh, my friend on the plane, she said to me when she'd calmed down, look, I am afraid of flying, but I'm glad you're here because you're a pastor. It's like I'm sort of some kind of lucky charm for her that would keep her safe. It's as though this is what God's people are doing with religious practice, particularly with fasting. And, you know, we are vulnerable to the same thing, aren't we? By role-playing in church. You know, you can do all the outward things, but without any substance. It can be empty ritual, praying, reading our Bibles, going to church, doing any kind of sanctified religious activity, being self-absorbed. And bring that to God, saying, look, can't things go my way this time? So that's false religion exposed. But let's think about false religion defined. We've had a little bit of a a, a definition, but it gets fuller than what we've seen. So false religion defined. Religion that's false is religion that's done out of self-righteousness and leads to oppression of others. Self-righteousness and oppression of others. Let's look at verses 3 to 5. Why have we fasted but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves but you haven't noticed. 
Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? The Israelites are convinced that God cares only for the outward action, not eating, bowed heads, lying in sackcloth and ashes. Their religion, he's saying, is not genuine. It's an outward show to win God. In those things of themselves, they're not the problem. Fasting's a good gift from God. But it's how they twist it to, so that because of their self-righteous attitude. Jesus condemns this over and over and over again in his teaching. That parable we read out. The context that Luke sets is so crucial, isn't it? To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. It sums up what's going on here in Isaiah. And it's fascinating, isn't it? In the story that Jesus told, the guy who's doing all the good religious right spiritual activity, all good things, he's the one who goes home condemned. That's kind of twisting our formula, isn't it? Because he's filling his bucket of righteousness, self-righteousness, and offering it to God, saying, on the basis of what I've done, you should accept me. Whereas the, the other man, who's also praying a good thing to do, both doing good things. But his prayer shows a completely different attitude. Essentially, he couldn't get any lower, and he's saying, God... I've got absolutely nothing. I've got nothing to offer. I need your mercy. I need to not get what I deserve and to get what I don't deserve. That's all I've got. So he's the one who goes home justified before God because of his humble heart, the right attitude about what he was doing. What about us? Aren't we in danger of becoming self-righteous? I mean us in terms of church by the bridge being our church. I'm not sure if you know, but I'm pretty convinced you would know that this is a great church. And I'm pretty convinced you do know that because you come here. Otherwise you wouldn't. I mean, no one chooses to go to a bad church. Well, you might. But before I came here, I knew that this church had a good reputation. And that's only been confirmed as I started this becoming my church. It's a great church. As I talk to people about this church and where I go, they always say, oh yeah, I've heard of that church. It's a great church. And we know it's a great church, isn't it? It's got great worship. It's got a great location. It's got great singing. It's got great preaching, well, most of the week's. It's got great people, great community, and you know, very rarely it's actually got legitimate affection and intimacy in its community. That's a remarkable and unique thing. And you know, and many of you have experienced that. 
And, you know, we even do great things in our community. And not just in our community, beyond our community, into the world. I mean, we're giving so wells are being built in Vietnam. We're helping people in real tangible ways. We are a great church. And that's a good thing. We don't want to change that. Well, no, quickly, we're in danger of becoming self-righteous. Let's make it a bad church. But it does mean we are in danger of becoming self-righteous. God, as a church, I give so that, or we give, so that wells are built in Vietnam. We pray once a term. We go to small hive groups that are organised. We have fantastic courses. We have dinners to invite our non-Christian friends. We do great things in the community. And we're in danger of being as God's people were in Isaiah. Self-righteous. Proud of what we do. Self-absorbed. And of course that always leads to looking down on others. That's why Jesus adds that part to the story. Those who are confident that they were righteous and looked down on others. And that's what's happening in these verses, isn't it? Verse 3, they oppress workers. And there's even strife in their own relationships and contention. It's as if somehow that you can gather and use your hands in worship of God. God, how good you are. You've done so much good for me and for us. You can do that one day and somehow the next day use the same hands that have used to praise God to literally have fights with other people. That's how vivid the picture is. And look at verse 9. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry it, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger-pointing and malicious speaking. It's not just oppressing others in kind of putting them down, but it's bringing not life but death in the way that they're speaking as well. Pointing the finger in accusation. Malicious talk, slander, gossip, complaining, whinging, backbiting, divisive talk. You know, as Aussies, it's one of the things we're particularly vulnerable, I think, in our culture. Because we have so much, it's so easy to complain. That seems to be the irony, isn't it? When you've got so much you think you'd be thankful for, but in, in fact, that's what it does to human nature. You've got so much, it actually causes you to whinge and complain. See, false religion is living for your own interest instead of others. It's as though God's people had this veneer of religious activity and spiritual fervor that they were hoping would be a camouflage for their deep and profound sin in their lives. But God knows. Uh, growing up at Collaroy, uh, it, it meant that, of course, when I got my license, I bought a VW Beetle to 
go to the beach to surf. But when you buy a car near the beach and the kind of rust proofing wasn't good then, I didn't just buy one VW Beetle. I had to buy a second one for parts because it quickly rusts. And so if, uh, you could replace the door, but some parts that rust you couldn't replace. You kind of had to patch it up, bog it up, you know, sp- spray paint it so it kind of looked okay. But it will last for a while. But as you know, rust it ends up kind of bubbling out, bursting out. It's only so long you can hide it. It's, so it is with having a wrong attitude before God. He knows and it will be exposed. And so, you know, you could turn up as a visitor to church and you could experience the goodness of this church and you might think, I want to come. All the good things that I've talked about. But God would want to see more, wouldn't he? God would want to see more. He'd want to leave with us in the car and to see what we said to each other in the car if we're driving together. Or see what we said to each other over supper or over a meal. He'd want to see what we're doing in our homes, how we're using the good gifts that he's given us, how we're relating to our flatmates or whether there's contention and malicious talk, whether we're robbing our bosses, we're more generous to ourselves than we are to others, whether our Monday actually matches our Sunday. God only knows your heart. And it can only be him by his spirit that can truly make you aware of what your heart is like before him. Whether you're truly in a dangerous position being here tonight or not. As defined by false religion. But what's real religion? Well, it's not empty rituals, but heartfelt humility and life-giving action. Let's look at verse 6. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Not empty rituals, but heartfelt humility seen in life-giving action in the lives of others, particularly those who are weak, vulnerable and in great need. That's the heart of God. A life of religious activity with the right attitude matched with a life of compassion and justice, mirroring how God's been to us. If you claim to know a God who's compassion and justice and just who sets people free as he set you free from your burden of sin, your life will display that God-likeness, compassion, justice, doing everything you can to set people free from whatever they're in bondage to. See, true religion is turning from a life of self-indulgence to a life of perpetual generosity directed towards everyone else but yourself. Generosity to others, especially the poor. 
Yes, it is about going to church, reading your Bible, praying, having loving relationships, essential and important. Look, listen to what James 1.27 says. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world, plain and simple, loving those in need, working for justice in the world, whatever you can, whatever means you have that allows you to do that, time, energy, finances. This is a confronting quote that I read this week. Being nice, harmless, church-going people with no repentance, no submission, no forsaking of self, no pursuit of Christ, but all that covered over with a glaze of sentimental religion on Sundays, this is not at all what God has in mind for us. That's very clear, isn't it? Isaiah's making it clear what God has in mind for us. A humble heart expressed in life-giving action to others. What are you planning this week to do good to people around you? That should be the direction and passion of our life. Becoming a Christian means we're completely freed of thinking. Life's about building our world and our empire where things go my way in my time. That's, that life's gone. We have a new direction and purpose and a new passion for God and to make him known in the lives of other people by doing them good, especially with the gospel and holding out the good news of Jesus. Why? Because the servant we read about has freed us from our own bondage to sin and set us on a new direction of freedom. He now speaks to us and asks us to do everything we can to set people free from the freedom, from the bondage therein, particularly their bondage to sin, by showing and sharing the gospel of Jesus. You know, our culture means we're on a trajectory of being upwardly mobile, upwardly mobile, and it's an absolute fight against that, isn't it? Have to make conscious decisions not to always think I've got to be on the up the new and improved thing, whatever that might be. It is so hard to keep downsizing, downsizing because you want to give away, give away, give away. It's so easy to be planning the next comfort purchase, whatever that might be, or the next holiday, even though you've had two or three already. Whatever it might be, can we fight to downsize for the sake of being generous to others? Could we even scheme towards that in our lives? I read one guy this week who suggested one way we could do that is to consider, and this will look different for everyone, giving away a substantial amount of our savings in a considered way. And as I said, substantial would be defined on your circumstances. And he said that he's, 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 when people do that, and he's seen people do that, it's always brought about a spiritual vigour in their life as they've give, given to others. Because what it's done is they've had to lay back onto the Lord, freshly reminded that he provides. 
or it's not just about giving our finances as well as about giving our time, isn't it? I mean, the bedrock of Australian culture, which is a good thing, is people volunteering to making good things happen in our culture. So you think of surf life saving, making our beaches safe. It's on the basis of people volunteering. Awesome. Or sporting clubs. It's on the basis of people volunteered to make something that is really important to us as Aussies happen. People volunteer all sorts of hours and time. They're no less busy or no less busy than we are, yet they do it. We have a more profound reason to volunteer, that is, give ourselves to others with the disposable time we've been given by God. How could you consider giving some of that disposable time? We're no more busy than other people and we have got time and we can make time to give that to the good of others, for the good of others. Lots of ways you could do that through the life of church. See, there is, and lastly, the reward of real religion. There's like a cascade of promises in this passage where God promises and promises and promises. You give yourself to me in relationship. Well, let's read what some of them are. Verses 8 and 9. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your regard. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking. And if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine. Verse 11, the Lord will always lead you, satisfy you. Strengthen your bones like a watered garden and like a spring whose water never run dry. Some of you will re- rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore. You will repair. You'll be the restorer of streets. Verse 14, then you'll delight yourself in the Lord and I'll make you ride over the heights of the land and let you enjoy the heritage of the father Jacob. Can you hear? God wants good for you, good for you, good for you. If it's true that we could be in danger, danger, danger being here, if we have the right attitude and relationship to God through Christ, basing our relationship with God on what he's done, not what we've done, and we live that out with a humble heart and life-giving action, see what's in store for us, God bringing about his purposes in the world, beginning with us. He wants to build a new city. That starts with us rebuilding the lives of other people. He wants us to delight in him. That starts with us delighting in him with a humble heart, not being self-absorbed and self-indulged, but actually giving ourselves to him and to others. Now, when a developer buys a property, big, big block of you know, land, they get a, a display home on that people come to, and it's just the best house ever that everyone wants. And so he'll build it for them all over the place. They want to be a part of it. God wants us to be this display home. For us to be a display of him in the world. A glimpse of what he has in store for all eternity. So people will flock and want to be a part of it. As they see our lives rebuild and us helping each other do that. They want to be part of that as well. So we'll be a light, bring about God, God's purposes in the world as we're living out a new, fresh passion and purpose 
of making God known and his purposes for every human being in the world. I think it's only appropriate in light of this passage that we spend some time confessing. And we're going to do that together. To come with humble hearts before God. That's the first point. That he might somehow expose our sin where necessary. That as he increases, we might decrease and become more aware of how good he is to us in Jesus and how great our need is because of our sin. This is a confession of response where I'll say some words and then you respond. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we've come to see that our lives fall far short of your glory. Have mercy and forgive us. You've given your Son for us and poured out your Spirit, yet we fail to return your love with all our heart. Have mercy and change us. Too often we are selfish and proud, ignoring you, Lord, and neglecting others. Have mercy and cleanse us. We do not truly trust and obey you. We are overwhelmed by self-pity, fear and worry. Have mercy and deliver us. In Christ, we are given a sure hope and secure love, yet we follow the false hopes and desires of this world. Have mercy and renew us. Father, through the redeeming death of your Son, by your Spirit and through your Word, enable us to follow you with joy. All this we ask, confident of your faithfulness and love. Amen.